Welcome to episode nine of the Internal Comms podcast with me, Katie McCauley. For this episode, we are delving into the world of social influencer marketing. What is it exactly? What is its significance on the media landscape? And what can internal comms learn from its insanely rapid growth? Harry Hugo is 24 and a co-founder of the GOAT agency. In three years, this social influencer marketing agency has grown to 120 employees in four offices around the world. His young team are working on seven-figure influencer deals with clients such as Lidl, Malibu, Adidas, New Look and KFC, to name but a few. Harry set up his first business when he was 16, Fresh Press a football publishing house which grew by the time he was 18 to over 60 websites and which had a bigger digital writing team than the Daily Mail. His next role was at Sport Lobster, the sports app startup where he became head of social. Now Harry is happy to describe himself as Marmite. Not for everyone. And what's more, as we know, social influencers and social media have got their critics. And I do ask Harry to respond to issues relating to his industry, on mental health in particular. You'll have your own views. Me, I found Harry warm, open and extremely engaging. At the age of 24, his insight and business acumen are nothing short of remarkable. Harry has a way of demystifying social influence. For him, it's all about being human, telling authentic stories and building a genuine, meaningful connection with a niche audience at scale. Now, should we, as IC pros, be making more of our own internal social influencers? Harry thinks we should be creating them. Now, before I get cracking, I have a little favour to ask you. This is the penultimate episode of season one, and I'd love to hear your views on the show. We have a short survey on the podcast page of AB's website. That's abcom.co.uk. And as an added incentive, if indeed it is, every UK entrant will be entered into a free prize draw to win AB's unique communications audit, AB Acid Test, which I'll conduct personally with our consultancy team. In this episode, you're going to hear Harry talk about the importance of alignment, particularly when managing a young workforce. For 20 years, organisations have been using ACID tests to diagnose poor understanding across their organisations at all levels and drive greater strategic alignment. This prize is a free ACID test across your entire communication function. That's both internal and external. But for now, without further ado, let's meet the irrepressible Harry Hugo. Harry, the first thing I have to ask you is a potentially quite a strange place to start. But in researching for this episode, I became completely captivated by your daily video that you do. Yeah. 4.59, is that right? We started at 4.59, which was my concept was that who are our audience? Our audience were people in the space who 
don't have a lot of time, but I want them to watch and, and get captivated, hopefully, like you did, and enjoy the conversations that we're being a part of in the office and show people behind the door of an agency that's growing. And I thought, okay, if I position it with less than five minutes and they could just dive in, watch it for less than five minutes, they know it's going to be that, then that's really, really positive. But actually what it fell out at, we did about 15 to 20 episodes where it was four minutes, 59 every single time. And then we realised actually we were cutting narrative short. Right. And we were sometimes overfilling episodes. Right. To just make the number, which was okay. arbitrary. Okay. Had no real value to the yeah. audience. And therefore we weren't creating what we needed to create, which was having the ability to have a video that went out every day about our agency and showed the agency around the world, but also create a narrative that, so if everyone watched it sequentially, they continue to have like a reality TV style yes. documentary where they yes. can watch it. But also if someone dived in to one, they could just get a capture of what we are and who we are. And 4 minutes 59 wasn't quite doing it for us. Right. So now it's like whatever it is. Okay. It's, it's 4 minutes to 10 minutes probably. We change it to Daily Goat. But it is a daily show, reality TV show. I can't hide from that. It shows our lives in fly-on-the-wall style, documentary yes. style every day from around the world. We have four offices around the world. You know, if they create content that day, that gets posted inside this captured high production quality video that we put out. It's not a showreel. It's not, look how amazing we are. This is the honest day of what happened. You know, one episode we had sort of episode 25, 26, we lost a pitch the day before. Right. And we just reacted to it live. Like we just talked about what it's like to lose a quarter million pound pitch. Right. You know, so we're real. We're talking about real things. We're trying to be a bit more relatable than Gary Vee. Right. Um, you know, <laughs> I, I like Gary. I think what he's done is incredible and I'm very impressed by the journey, but we're not him. We're no. not super motivational or that inspirational. We're just three... It's very real. It's three very three real. normal guys who've stumbled across something that works, have grown a business completely organically with no one else's money involved and have done it quickly. And we're telling a story and we're just opening the doors up every single day to a real life business mm. in the UK, which is very few people doing this in the UK. And hopefully people like us. Our biggest fear at the start was, are people actually going to like us? Right. that's the number one problem, right? When you put yourself out there, it's, do people think I'm an arsehole or is there a point to what I'm saying or... I don't know, people judge you, right? Then yeah, absolutely. You're worried about that. And as a founder of business, reputation is quite important. Yes. Yeah, it's been a steep learning curve, but it's been a lot of fun. It's probably been the most fun and definitely the hardest thing I've ever done. There must have been a moment when you worried about things like confidentiality, maybe giving away secrets. I mean, is that yeah, something so you worry about? We didn't because we started so quickly after deciding we were going to do it. Right. So we decided we were going to start vlogging we wanted to do this for years and we were worried about those things but also more about our reputation and what people thought of us and we know especially Aaron and I are very Marmite characters like you either like us or you don't we decided that we were going to start vlogging our lives on the Thursday we had no staff that could do that we have 120 staff worldwide but we had no people with any video skills and we knew that we wanted to start Monday and we wanted to put our first video on Tuesday that we recorded on Monday and we hired everyone we needed, team of four, in 24 hours. Wow. And they started Monday. And we put our first video out on Tuesday. And then we've released a video every single day, at least one video. So we create one daily vlog and then we do lots of cut-ups and we answer questions from the audience and things like that in separate videos. But every single day for 64 days. And 
it's been nuts. We haven't really had a chance to think about all the no. nuances. We've obviously thought about them as we've gone, but I remember getting an email from, I hate me for saying this, but get an email from my lawyer the morning after the first one. And he went, are you sure you want to do this? It was massive. Like the similar sort of length to this safe board document you've given me here, which is like just loads of like, have you thought about this? This was interesting, but I'm not sure you should be doing this bit. And I just replied to him the morning after really quickly. just went, just trust me on this one. I know what I'm doing. I've never done this before, but I get what you're saying. So I've taken it on board, but trust me. Because he was like, stop doing this. Right. And now he's one of our biggest fans. (laughs) (laughs) He thought it was awful. Because obviously the only other thing you've got the only other documentary in the UK in an office is The Office. Exactly. Which is just a massive piss take on the person running the business. So you've always got that, are you going to be the David Brent character? And yeah, like hopefully we're, because we're so real or trying to be so real, trying to capture everything in real time, hopefully we don't come across like that because we're not playing up to the camera. Today. Exactly. No, it's very fly on the wall. You said to me when we spoke, before meeting today that actually it had quite a big impact internally Mm. and I'm just interested in clients that might be listening companies that might be listening could it be potentially quite useful internally as well as externally so we went into it believing that 80% of the value from it we're investing a lot of money right we're investing about £150,000 over the course of a year in staff and equipment everything like that to make this happen we believe that 80% of the value would come from new clients and we're a marketing agency so everything relies on new clients and client retention and campaigns being signed off so we thought 80% of value would come from those guys 15% of value would come from hiring recruitment both in terms of people being able to identify with our business because they could see what it was like from the outside and then associate themselves with the right business but also then people actually finding us and, and wanting to apply and wanting to be a part of it and then 5% of it would be like oh it'd be cool if everyone watched it it's right it's literally the opposite. We got very lucky and I've just come out of a board meeting where I'm discussing our first quarter and the fact that we launched Singapore office in our first quarter. And we got very lucky that we launched the blog at a very, very similar time to our Singapore office. Not because it was great content, but because unlike New York, Singapore is a complete satellite, mm. right? There's hardly any time crossover. So creating a culture and sustaining the culture across the world when there's a huge time difference is incredibly difficult especially really? a growing company yeah so we were very lucky that we started the blog without meaning to created a worldwide culture immediately because people were watching what everyone did the day before and what really started the reason we did the vlog at that thursday afternoon was we got the results of an internal survey anonymous survey and one of the questions was mark one to ten as to how much you know about what the directors do every day Right. And the average was two out of ten. <gasps> Ooh. Like, wow, like, no one knows what we're doing. And when we were 20, 30 people, everyone knew what we did because they saw us doing it. Well, as soon as we saw that, we went, wow, like, there's so much stuff I wish so many people knew. And now we're 100 people. It's very hard to communicate one-to-one with 100 people so fast about all the different things we do for the business, for pushing the business forward. And now we can do it in seconds. Yes. And that is so powerful for pushing people forward, for motivating people, for aligning people into the same thing, everyone buying into the product that we're trying to push as a business. What's really important for listeners to understand, if you haven't watched the vlog, and I'm not expecting anyone to have, is it's not Gary Vee style, one person. No. We're not the founders, here we are, this is amazing. This is a GOAT 
vlog mm. and you get characters from within the business right from the junior level right mm. to the top another reason for me is I'm 24 this is going to be the best year of my life I run a big agency it's worldwide I get to travel a lot I get to do some cool things and more importantly I get to do it with amazing people mm-hmm. wouldn't it be cool on January the 1st 2020 to sit on the sofa and watch my life last year <laughs> and watch what other people in the business did and how they grew from March to December and wow look at what they're doing now they were an account manager in March and they were good and we thought they were good but I never thought they'd be yeah this and mm-hmm. let's see how they did that Amazing. So for listeners who might not know that much about social influencer marketing, what is it? Why is it different from something we've all heard of for decades, like, you know, celebrity endorsement? What's different about social influencers? Influencer marketing is a new way for advertisers to get to audience. Right. Social media is everything right now. Yes. It's where people are. It's where people spend their time. It's where people watch videos. It's where people interact. There's always been, in society, people who are more influential than other people. Yes. Now, right the way back into the Egyptians, and you have pharaohs, and like right the way through to like Martin Luther King, when he does amazing talks in front of hundreds of thousands of people. And then right the way down to the most simple way, where you've always got that one person in the pub who a few people gather around. These people have just built communities and built followers, built audiences on these platforms. And it really is just the new word of mouth. Right. Word yes. of mouth is, was in the pub before and now it's on Absolutely. Instagram. And yes. Instagram's just the new pub. And the ability to influence four people over a pint now is scaled hugely because you don't have to have a pint. It doesn't have to be physical. It can be through social media and it could be four million people. Yes. And that's the power. Now, obviously, with great power comes great responsibility. And that's the sort of stuff that the industry is marred by right now. Is, mm-hmm. You know, you've got your fire festivals and you've got yes. your fake followers and you've got your frauds and, you know, all these things that come off the back of it. But if anything, they prove the value and the power of this medium. And, and it's something that's growing incredibly fast. When we started this business three and a half years ago, people were very sceptical about whether or not it works. People were very sceptical to spend any more than five, ten thousand pounds on a campaign. Mm-hmm how they're spending millions of pounds on campaigns and they're the same brands right they're also much bigger brands you know who are spending millions and millions of their marketing budget on this yes and it's because it works and it's very simple to see that word of mouth always has been the most effective channel always it's the cheapest because people tell people that's free and it's the most effective because there's eye contact there's a connection there's a shared relationship between the people a shared common interest and now we just like export all of that onto instagram you really like liverpool football club i really like Liverpool football club i follow you you tell me that something's happening i'm it right um, okay that mutual interest and mutual shared group is incredibly powerful and also before i finish on this sentence i think people don't mind being advertised to mm. i totally believe that as mm. long as they get advertised to with things that they care about that feel relevant yeah Yeah, absolutely I'm a Liverpool fan and on Friday night or even tonight Liverpool play tomorrow tonight if an advertiser so like a New Balance who sponsor their kit or a Standard Charter who are also a sponsor on their kit offer me online through an influencer the ability to win tickets for tomorrow night or in the Champions League then I am in on that I don't care if it's an advert I don't care if it's on behalf of a brand like I have a huge positive affinity for that brand if they're offering me the 
opportunity to go watch Liverpool versus Barcelona. Yes. Because I care about that thing. And the same goes for if I'm a vegan and Wagamama launched their new vegan menu through influencers or on social or whatever. I care about that because mm. it's a shared interest with those two things and the brand is facilitating that and therefore I have a huge affinity to that. So you must work very hard up front to find the right influences yep. for that brand, for that product, for that moment and for that audience. Is that a big part of what you're doing? Yeah, preparation is a lot of it. Right, um, okay. Discovery, identification, that's a big part of everything we do. We, we built proprietary technology at the start of the company and really what we were looking at is value. Why we don't care so much about what people say about the fake followers and the fraud is because we don't actually care about how many followers someone has. Okay. Because it doesn't make a difference. There's such a massive disparity between one person who has a million followers and another person who has a million followers and their actual influence. Right. And what they can make their audience do, be it buy things, go somewhere, watch something. There's a huge disparity and there's no real blueprint as to what that oh, really? disparity is. Okay. So it's a pure trial and error. So okay. The competitive advantage we have on that is the fact that we've been trialling and erroring for four years and we've yes. spent 25, 30 million pounds to do it. Right. Of client money and delivered on results based on the fact that we are trying to find value in the market, of which there is a huge amount of value to find, but there's also a huge amount of value lost. Right. And that's always been our sell. It's right. just an advertising channel to find better value in the market, in marketing, than anything else. And I'm right in thinking that brands are coming to you directly. It's not that traditional advertising agencies are saying, have a pot of our money to do this on the side. Yeah, interesting you say that. I think we're one of the only influencer agencies who that isn't the case, the advertising right. uh, agency side of things. Probably only about 5% of our revenue comes from traditional advertising agencies. This mm. is quite a big competitor to them. Whereas, yeah, 95% of our money comes from brands themselves. Mm. It's an interesting market. Like with the, lots of the big advertising industry reps and advertising agencies are building their own influencer marketing arms. Okay. Whether they're any good or not, I'll leave the brands to decide. Would you be skeptical about a traditional? I'm skeptical because they said it didn't work three years ago <laughs> right. when they didn't do it. And right. now they say it's really good. Now they do it. So like, you've got to be skeptical about that. We've been fighting the cause. You know, it's crass as that might sound, but we've been fighting the cause for four years, knowing that we could prove the value. And those guys were like, no, it doesn't work. No, it doesn't work. No, it doesn't work. Oh, you're taking follow of our budget. We're going to set it up. Oh, it's the best thing in the market. Like, if we're talking about what works with influencer marketing, authenticity is everything. And that is the antithesis of authenticity. Yes. And telling that story, and if people really mapped it out, the people that are doing really well in this market are people that have backed it from the start. Right. Because what I said, they've had to learn. You learn what works and what doesn't, and it takes time. You can't just drop yourself into it and work it out because it is not a safe place to do that. It's too much money you have to try mm. in order to work out what works. Right, okay. And what are some of the sort of KPIs that clients are coming to you with? Because there's a massive difference, as we know, between output, as you say, just followers and outcomes, that people actually yes. go and do something as a result. What kind of things are brands hoping? How are you going to move the dial? What are you doing? Yeah, so we, I say we, the three founders here, so myself, Aaron and Nick, came from an app called Sport Lobster. Right. Aaron was the founder and it was head of marketing and I was head of social. And our KPI was to drive app downloads and right. users. And we raised £20 million to do so. 
we sponsored the NFL, the NBA, Premier League football teams. We have tube ads everywhere, radio ads everywhere, classic digital display. And then we paid someone £10 one day on Twitter who had 100,000 followers. And he delivered 2,000 downloads. Wow. And then we had Cristiano Ronaldo post on his Facebook, 120 million followers. Most followed person in the world. 2,000 downloads. And we spent a lot more than £10 on that no. person. And we're like, oh my God, this is a gold mine. So all we cared about, <laughs> all we cared about was download. So right at the bottom of the funnel. Yeah. So we, impressions, engagement, to yeah. clicks. All we cared about was downloads and what that price was. We pay £10, get 2,000. Unbelievable value. We pay 100,000 and get 2,000. Terrible value. So when it comes to bottom of the dial KPI, that's really what we built on because that's okay. what we did. Well, that's what we care about. That's what we understand. That's why I come back to value. We're not talking about vanity metrics. When we talk to clients, we're talking about sales, deposits on betting clients, downloads, video views. With some people, you know, that's really it's in the cusp of vanity, but it's you know people do care about that stuff. Yeah. Social follower growth, building right. accounts, like not things that you can fake. We built an account for a client a year ago, and it still gets. 15, 20% engagement rate. Right. It's got thousands, tens of thousands of followers because they're real people who we drove there for a real reason to engage with content that they would like for a long time. Most of it is sales. Yes. Most of it is the thing that clients care the most about that no one else can promise them. Yes. And we're like, well, we've done enough work here to understand who can drive sales and who can't because the Sport Lobster journey was all about working out who could drive downloads and who couldn't. Right. And then we just brought that into Go. We then did that with loads of different apps. We worked out more and more as Cooper Drive downloads, and we went, ah, well, I wonder if the same thing works for selling clothes. And it did. Right. And it was just using loads of different new influencers who sold clothes. And then we realized, oh, that's interesting. Someone who's really good at selling dresses is really, really bad at selling jeans. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh, okay, there's loads of variables to it. It's not just followers. It's not just engagements. There's nuance to this that right. is completely untrackable and completely unautomated. It has to be human. And that's why I believe all the platforms are going to lose because there's loads and loads of automated platforms in this space. Oh. But they can't get their head... Well, it's impossible, right, for a computer to understand that this person is great for new look to sell clothes. Yeah. That it can understand. But it can never understand that they're good for selling black things <laughs> versus selling things with polka dots. And it literally is as nuanced as that. Okay. Um, we would get sales reports from fashion clients and it would be shocking to us week one to week two as to why that person sold £10,000 worth of clothes to £0. And we're like, that is impossible. And then we looked at the difference. It's like denim versus khaki or right. camouflage. That's mad. But that's all about what I said earlier as well audience, community, and what people care about and what their shared interest. And if that person doesn't actually like camouflage, but is talking about it for the first time in two years, why are people going to believe them? Exactly. And that's the authenticity. And really what we're trying to boil that all down to right now is a, a nice catchy sentence, which is niche content to niche communities at scale. Right, okay. So, yeah, content that matters to people that care with loads of people talking about it at the same time.
Right, OK. And that's influence marketing. Absolutely. No, it makes perfect sense. So I'm going to give you a bit of a challenge because I think this is applicable to other audiences. So you work inside a large corporation. Say, for example, you have tens of thousands, maybe yep. over 100,000 people, potentially worldwide. There's a huge change program on the horizon. You think it might not be incredibly popular with everyone, but it's very necessary for the survival of the business ultimately. Yep. Could you apply the principles of influencer marketing to that campaign internally? Yeah, so we've had this task with a fashion brand. Okay. And we're about to pitch for this task for a sporting governing body. Okay. And the answer now versus what it was when we pitched it for the fashion brand has changed. Oh, okay. That when it was the fashion brand, it's, okay, how can we find the people who work in your stores who are stylish and who are fantastic creators and have small Instagram followings? And how can we create those guys to be the poster guys for the brand? The beauty of influencer marketing is it's mini production houses. People have the ability to create content at scale and you don't have to pay professional photographers to do it. It's brilliant. So with that brand, we could identify all the people who worked at that brand and use them for ad campaigns by helping them create content, giving them vouchers to go and buy clothes at that store. And mm -hmm. that was a really nice ambassador, the internal ambassador scheme that also had a huge upside on the social side of things. When it comes to the sport organisation, they came to us through the vlog. Right. And I'd say... The vlog is an unbelievable way of engaging the ambassadors within your brand and the influence within your brand and giving them a voice. And it doesn't have to be a vlog, but creating daily content about the organization, how it functions and why it does things and why people in that organization are making decisions and justifying them and showcasing it is also just such a powerful way to empower the people within it. And I think that's another big thing. Like, don't be a showreel, be human. Brands are becoming more and more human and brands that are becoming more and more human are winning because everyone buys into human stories. Mm -hmm. You don't have to take the mickey out of things, but you can be lighthearted and show off what an inclusive, diverse, engaging and fun place to work your mm. business is. And mm. yeah, it's fantastically powerful. And mm. you're basically creating mini influences within your organisation. Yes, absolutely. People buy into human stories. Yes. It's the first thing I tell anybody who's looking to raise investment is scrap your deck, just mm -hmm. find or build a story that the investor can buy into you. No one invests in ideas. Mm -hmm. Everyone invests in people. And the same goes for anything. It's all about the story. I'm interested, though, whether this is quite a fundamental shift in terms of control. So you said a moment ago that these are all mini content creators. They're producing their own photography. Mm. They're not being scripted. That's the whole point. They're being themselves. Does it mean that brands have to relinquish that traditional control that they've had for years over exactly how things were positioned? I mean, literally positioned. Is that quite scary for most organisations and brands? I think it is, but we're moving so fast into the social media world where that becomes less precious. I think okay. things have become less precious. Now, 
it's not a billboard that lasts there for six weeks okay. and it's now an Instagram story that lasts 24 hours. People right. are becoming slightly less precious. Okay. Now, that's obviously going to have to evolve even more with us. Like I said earlier, it's like you've got to forget yesterday's episode already. Like, I don't know if I can see it being uploaded right now today's episode, <laughs> right? And yep. as soon as that goes up, I've got to forget about that episode. Right. And it's okay. all on tomorrow's episode because this one's being watched today and then everyone will forget it. No one's going to watch it in 36 hours' time. Nobody. Mm. We see that. Like, literally, mm. no one watches it after 36 hours. Right. So, it's pointless me worrying about what it looked like or how I came across yeah. in 48 hours on that episode because no one else cares at that point. So, time is moving at a much more rapid okay. pace. And okay. therefore, the ability to be precise and the ability to control everything is far less and okay. slightly less fundamental to all the marketing techniques that are around now than they were. The scientific element of it is still there if you're going through Facebook ads or Google or the bidding systems. That still has the science and the nuance. But I think creative is moving more and more to the creator's control. Okay. And the creators or the influencers are the new creative directors. Yes. And I think people can deal with that because of the social proofing that the followers and the engagement, everything else that comes with it Mm. is. And they're like, they must know what they're doing. They've got half a million followers. Right. Okay. And that social proof allows people to slightly relinquish that full control. Now, brands will always want an element of control. Yes. We still see that. But they are relinquishing an element of it. And that allows creative freedom. It allows huge, hugely better results. Because fundamentally, the creators and the influencers know their audience better than anyone else. Yes. And, uh, yes. You know, they've been harvesting that audience for years in yes. most cases. Yes. And if a brand was to come and give them constraints to go and do certain things, then it's never going to work to the same extent that the creator would believe it would in their way. And we've got loads of examples of when that's true, and I've got no examples of when it's not true. And do you want to hazard a guess what the market's worth? Because I've read so many conflicting reports. Forbes says anywhere between 10 billion dollars by 2020 others are saying more like two do yeah. you have a sense of the market i don't really i know like, i think we're at one percent maybe a bit less than one percent of total global ad spend okay. and i think we should be and i say we as if i'm the bastion of <laughs> influence marketing should be 15 percent but I believe influence marketing is going to be the core of social marketing. I see. And I'm never professing, I've never professed to any brand that they should spend 100% of their marketing budget with us. Mm, mm, it doesn't work. Mm. You need to do a lot of different things. Now, 15% is not a lot okay. in the grand scheme of things. That means that you can do seven or eight different marketing channels. And that can include TV, radio, billboard, display, influencer, paid social. You've still got two left. Yes. I'm just saying that they should just be more equal. And we've also seen over the last five years, the brands who have spent 50% on influencer marketing have massively over-indexed the brands that have spent 50% on TV. Right, okay. Look at Gymshark, look at ASOS, yes. look at Pretty Little Thing, look yes. at all the fast fashion brands, in fact. All the e-commerce fashion brands mm -hmm. like that, huge graph on the upward curve, all the retail fashion brands who are on the high street, opposite direction. Yeah. And guess which ones did influence marketing, which ones didn't. You know, the success story of most of those brands is because of influence marketing. I'm not saying the only negative for the brands who didn't is if they didn't do influence marketing, it's a mixture of the fact that investing on the, on the high street and that's not where people are mm. anymore. Mm. But 
there is a common factor of the fact that one invested in social media and the other didn't. In Fire Festival's example, alone got three, 5,000 people to travel to the other side of the world, prepay, and it wasn't a thing, and it's less than 1% of people's marketing budget. Why? This marketing channel, despite it being potentially used for negative things, mm. can be used so powerfully that it can get people to travel to the other side of the world for nothing, and you're only spending less than a percent? That's nuts. I mean, it's, it's worrying a little bit about the Fly Festival because I suppose that's the thing that kind of worries people about the whole industry, isn't it? That's... Only people have got something to hide, okay. in my opinion. Okay. The Fly Festival guys should have worried about it yeah. because they, they didn't have a product. Okay. But if they did, it would have been the best festival in the world. Right, good point. <laughs> they, had, they had the best people there. They'd sold out the tickets. They'd all the money been prepaid. They just need to put a festival on. Yeah, so it shows the power of the communication method, basically. Yeah. That really understand Fire Festival 2 is going to be the best festival in the world. When someone actually gets the festival right, the marketing's yeah. perfect. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it was an unbelievable advert for us, that documentary. Right. It really was. It was like, you realise... That's all they did. Yes. <laughs> yes. Look, look what happened. Look what happened. Imagine yeah. if they could have executed the product. And I'm like, you guys believe that you've got the product? Like the Fire Festival guys sent the influencers on the people who paid on planes to the island. Yeah. If you're the island and your product's really good, they just didn't have anything on their island. Mm. But if we can send them, yes. imagine what your product can do. Yeah, incredible. Let's talk a little bit about demographics because this is a young industry and your people yeah. are average age of, of 24. 24, okay. And most social influencers, my children who are 11 and 14, were very nervous about me doing this interview because they felt that I needed to understand a lot more than who I do. they like to ask? Um, uh, well, this, you've got to ask about Twitch. You've got to make yeah. sure that you know the difference, Katie, between Ali A and, yeah. uh, you know, the difference between Logan Paul and don't mention Logan Paul. <laughs> <laughs> and they were giving me, like, you know, the 101 of it all. Are we going to break out of this narrow demographic as well at some point? Do you see that already happening, that you've got social influencers who are not necessarily as old as me, but, you know, yeah, break no, and, and we do. I think it's... It's interesting. The biggest ones are always going to be the mainstream guys. Mm. If we look at entertainment through the years, like they've always been the same age. The key presenters on TV, the key actors, all these people, they've always been the same age, right? And we're looking at demographics. They're the entertainers of the world. Logan Paul is a great example of someone. He's 24, 25. It's the same sort of age that all the big music stars become famous, all the big actors become famous, like just how the world works. People just pitch and hold it because they're so attached to social media for young people. Again, they're forgetting that everything else is the same and social media is society now. They're just right. forgetting that. Are there influencers and people online who are older? Of course. The beauty of it is there's so many different niches which attract okay. older demographics. Interior design, a huge niche in the influencer community, attracts older people because the only people interested in it are people who own homes, mm -hmm. of which are you know usually mm. 35 plus. Mm. You've got the parenting community, which is right. unbelievably powerful online. Instagram and YouTube are rife with it. And again, the audience is older mm. because they're looking for tips and they're looking for validation. Are they doing their parenting right? But yeah, you've got platforms like Pinterest, which you know is, is dominated by females, 80% female. Average age on Pinterest is about 28 to 30, right. you know, mm. which you think of all the social media, which skews left of that. And mm. you know, Pinterest is skewing right at scale as well hundreds of millions of users and then Instagram I don't know it's, it's a weird one when I do a keynote I talk about and show stats from some big studies to show that people aged 35 to 55 spend more time on social media than anyone else now more time now, more time okay they don't engage as much okay they don't watch as much 
but they spend more time there because they're just now I'm speaking on behalf of an age group I don't sit within but they just engage with things in a different way they're consumers they just browse and see and compare and look at things and research but my age group is like comment message oh do you see this interact like super interactive yes because all I want to do is see things and do things and show people because that's social proofing for my age group it's like did you see this and what's right. I take it from Instagram and I post it on my WhatsApp chat and then it gets posted on Twitter and then oh, wouldn't it be cool on LinkedIn that's all I'm thinking about when I watch my girlfriend's mum I see her just flicking through Facebook for hours and I'm like there can't be that much content <laughs> but she's just seeing all this stuff and, but she'll never like anything okay. she'll never share anything my mum never shares anything but she's on Facebook every night yeah, interesting. They're lurkers, They're aren't lurkers. they? Lurkers. <laughs> they just engage and, and work in a different way, but mm. they spend their time there. Yeah. And they're watching different things and they're engaging and following different people. For people not to believe that they're there is just naive. I can't think of many apps that anybody uses outside of the social networking apps on a consistent basis. Anyone. And that's for reference. It could be my mum who only uses Instagram to follow six people and all of them are her relatives or people that she knows and she just wants to watch their stories but she watches them every night at the same time my grandma she's 70 no she's older she's 80s and she watches the vlog every night on Facebook and she rings me at 8.30 if it's not up but she's on Facebook waiting for it now she's not just there for the vlog she's also doing other things but she never likes and she never comments and she never says (laughs) But the same thing with everyone, right? It just, depending on what age group you're at, depending on what you're willing to to share. I remember my mum in the early days of Facebook when I was building pages and stuff like that and she didn't want to comment just again, didn't want people to find her. And what are you talking about? Like, it doesn't make any sense to me. When I first met my girlfriend's parents four years ago, before we started Go, when I was a social media manager for Sport Lobster, I told them what I did. And they went, oh, Facebook, you know, I just don't know why people would share what they're doing every day. I now can't see them off Facebook. <laughs> every single day they'll post a photo of those two doing something somewhere. And I'm like, the world's changed now. Yes. This is how people operate. To think it doesn't work like that, you're just being delusional. Yeah. And yeah, of course, a 55-year-old lady and south africa doesn't follow logan paul of course they don't mm-hmm. of course a 65 year old guy in lincoln doesn't watch Alie on twitch mm-hmm. it's not built for him no but they do watch something and it will be based on their interests now my grandma i know she wants to follow gardening things and see what happened now previously 20 years ago she'd have watched alan titchmarsh on bbc but that doesn't exist anymore no it's whoever it is on Instagram. Yes. So it's just society has moved and that's just where we are right now. Yeah, no, it makes perfect sense. So we have a lot of organisations now grappling with four, maybe five generations in the same workforce. Yeah. And probably the generation these organisations potentially worry about most is the millennials. I hate that term because it's become a catch-all phrase for anyone who's young. How do you motivate and engage a young workforce? You have a really young workforce. What are millennials? It's hard. It's hard. (laughs) It's hard. What everyone says about millennials is true. They're entitled. They want everything without giving everything back. And they expect everything to be handed to them. That's true. 
and I'm the same. But managing that in the right way, they're the best workforce ever. Because when they are pointed in the right direction, are motivated in the right way, there's never been a workforce more tech savvy, more holistic, and had the ability to do anything that you ask them to do. I think with a workforce, and I'm speaking on behalf of a generation, a workforce that can be pointed in any different way without necessarily needing the skill set in the first place. Okay. Whereas in previous walks of life, you did one skill as a job for the whole of your life. Whereas now, people do all sorts of different things by the time they're 30. Yes. It's less about the skill, it's more about the person and what they're trying to do and putting their all into that. Is that what you meant by holistic? Yeah, I think they can do a lot of different things. I think they have the grounding early on to do those different things. Mm. I think there's a lot of drawbacks. How do we motivate people to do it? I talk about alignment a lot, okay. bringing people back. And that's why the vlog's important. That's why we have a company meeting and like a standard sales company would have every month. Each department has its own like mini meeting every morning. That alignment back to the goal. The goal is to be the best marketing agency in the world. We just need to keep beating that drum with the best marketing agency in the world. Do that. They do that. But they do that. And having that North Star is really important mm. because it's very easy to just align and there's certainly not a workforce that misaligns any faster than the millennials okay they go off the rails very fast it's very hard to focus but when they're aligned to that or start they it's gung-ho it's everything goes i think there's a lot of self-belief in the young foot workforce to do that and a lot of that comes from the new way of social proofing and the new social currency of social media and the ability to network from a very young age you know, I remember my mum allowing me to play video games as much as I wanted because I talked to my friends on Skype or on voice chat yep. on Call of Duty all, yes. all day. Yes. It was actually a social thing yes. to play video games. I wasn't if, playing games on my own. No, exactly. I literally got home from school, having talked to my mates all day, and then instantly got on the mic with the, yep. the next six hours. That was my social occasion. Absolutely. There's something to be said about that and that kind of friends group. and. I mean, also I noticed on Fortnite, before we absolutely say that these kids should not be on there, they are saving the world together as well. There's yes. quite a lot of team building that goes on yeah. online as well. So I'm heartened to hear that hasn't damaged you because uh, my kids will be very pleased to hear that. No, I don't. I think there's a lot of real world experience that also played a part in my ability to socialise maybe better mm. than some other people. Mm-hmm. I grew up in pubs, so I got the human-to-human contact quite a lot mm. uh, from a very young age, like three, four years old. All my friends at that age were locals, and I'd do spelling test practice with the locals at the bar rather than with my parents, because my parents were working in the pub. And I think the biggest thing that I haven't mentioned yet about how we motivate our millennial workforce, and to be clear to the listeners... Our oldest member of staff out of 120 people worldwide is 33. Okay. Is opportunity. Every single person in this building has an opportunity to take over the world and to run the business. If you're good enough, you'll run the business. As soon as someone becomes better than Aaron, Nick and I running the business, we'll give them the business to run. And now that takes time and you've got to go through the ranks. But some of our best employees were stacking shelves in supermarkets 18 months ago and now earning a lot of money, doing great things. And they're 22 and running 25 person teams globally Mm. fly around the world about 18 months ago they were earning five pound an hour stacking shelves at tesco and that opportunity is probably the biggest motivator and the thing that eliminates entitlement the most 
because millennials are entitled, but only entitled to what they can't have. If you give them everything, they can have everything. It's then down to them. And as soon as you give them the opportunity for it to be down to them, then that's the way you can focus them back to that North Star. Okay. And I talk from experience. Aaron hired me at Sport Lobster when there was five of us in a room. And I was 18. I'd just come out of college. I'd run my own business, but I'd never worked for someone else. I'd never done anything at any scale. And he just went, okay, well, here's a million quid. Work it out. I had to work it out. And that was the ultimate opportunity. And we've effectively done that with 120 people. We've just gone, we're not quite sure how to do this at this level. So here's your tools. Just go work it out. Yeah. And... That's been incredibly, incredibly powerful for us. And it makes people work really hard. It makes people want to achieve. And those people also see themselves rise up the business. And other people respect those people because they can see they're working hard. They can yes. see because everyone's got the same opportunity. Yes. It's literally a meritocracy. There's a sort of a growing swell of sort of criticism. You know, people saying worried about privacy, people worried about mental health and how addictive our machines are, people worried about social media, my goodness me, even influencing elections. That's been a thing for years, right? People have created propaganda and advertising to move election voting for Mm. years. This is why I get confused. People go, yeah, it's really bad for all these things. And we're like, yeah, these things have been going on for hundreds of years. Open your eyes. Mm. We're just blaming something that's come around in the last 10 years and we've just all panicking. But okay. look at the front page of the last 10 Sun editions when there's been an election the night before. Like All of it's propaganda. All of it's Murdoch going, I want this person to be prime minister. And they put those people, go and vote May or go and vote whatever. Yeah. But this is the same thing, right? It is the same thing. I suppose those critics would say the trouble is the reach and the influence now because this is a different kind of media. You know, this is a media that literally grabs you by the throat. You know, it won't let you go. So the influence now is so great, potentially to get people to think and do things differently. Would that be a fair criticism, do you think? I think it's fair. And I can say with the fire festival example, I think with great power comes great responsibility. And it's what the newspapers had 20 years ago. It's what TV's had for the last 40 years. It's what radio had the time before that. I'm totally supportive of the mental health stigma that comes alongside it. I think mm. that there is a genuine link between social media and mental health problems. And I think it's pretty clear to see that mental health problems have escalated since the dawn of, of social media, or at least the dawn of Instagram. And a lot of that comes back to the thing that I've been saying is so great, which is the social proofing. And that is actually a negative too. The social currency that is the likes is or can be incredibly negative because people judge themselves against a numeric figure Mm. when human beings are far more than that that can definitely be a problem and i think we're seeing it certainly amongst young guys and girls in the uk right now Mm. and it swings both ways for me because i see people pull down instagram posts because it's it's not performing very well now there's two sides of my brain that goes wow we've now got people aged eight who can see when a post is performing well or not and a self-marketing to then re-upload at 9pm, that's genius. We're actually generating people who, when we're talking about this next generation, these people are going to think at a different level to anyone's ever thought before. These guys are going to be analytical to the nth degree. They're A-B testing, my 11-year-old's A-B testing. Which is mad. (laughs) You're going to talk to my mum, ask her what A-B testing. She had no idea. (laughs) 
But every 11-year-old in the country is, is A-B testing every yeah. night. Thumbnails, mm-hmm. photos on Instagram, posting times, like to copy, like everything. Mm. But of course, with that comes incredible pressure, pressure to succeed, and ultimately pressure to fail and what they do when it fails. And we all know that an 11-year-old can't deal with failure at the same level a 18-year-old can, 30-year-old can, mm. a 50-year-old can, because mm. they haven't had the life experience to tell them that failure is not that bad. And also they haven't got any perspective as to what failure is in the grand scheme of things. And an 11-year-old failing on Instagram to their friends is the worst thing that could happen ever. But for me, posting a photo and only getting 50% of the likes it normally gets, like, I've got bigger fish to fry. And it's that perspective, I think, which is causing the problems. Okay. I'm not a doctor, nor am I a scholar in how these things are related. I just kind of, that's my opinion coming from the outside. I think it's that social currency of which has become so valuable and people desire it so much that the fear of failing it Mm. and not having as much as the next person who they want to be or who they're in a peer group with Mm. that person succeeding and then failing is the end of the world Mm. and the perspective of it not being the end of the world can't be carried out because these people are so young Mm. we've never had that before in Mm. society it's like and this is a really crass analogy but talking about the pub thing it's like inviting 11 year olds to the pub right okay start drinking with those guys over there yeah oh that doesn't work and that's what it is so you, do you think we will see greater regulation? We're bound to see greater regulation? Yeah, I'm, I'm working quite closely with the ASA. I think we will see quite a lot of new regulation. I think it's got to be sensible. I think quite a lot of the regulation right now isn't. I okay. think they're also regulating a 2019 practice okay. in 2016 rules. Right. Which okay. doesn't work. Okay. Which means that lots of people don't listen to the rules necessarily because they don't believe they're the right rules. I see. So I think it's very important that we get the rules right. And it's mm. not just about slapping any old rule on it because mm. otherwise all rules in the future will be disregarded. Working to get those right are really important and mm. to keep them up to date. We always know they're going to be six months delayed because it's everything when it comes to regulation is reactionary. But we need to be slightly more proactive than they're being. Mm. I think they're three years out. So you don't foresee the end of the Facebook model where effectively the product's given away for free because they can mine and harvest that data and resell that data. I mean, that's pretty safe. I know that there are are critics of that model, but that's that's here to stay. Yeah, I think that's a safe model. I think there's going to be two models that work in the future. There's the mining the data, understanding who and what everyone is that's using the platform. And then there's the SaaS model, the Netflix model, where you pay £9.99 and Mm -hmm. you get... Everything for free, effectively. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, everything above your nine ninety nine worth of value that you think you're getting out of it, you get for free. And that's a nice model. You kind of feel like you're getting access to this elite club. Yes. You get everything. I can't believe this is only nine nine nine. And then you're really, oh, hold on, a billion people are paying nine ninety nine. I'm sure they're doing okay. Yeah, yeah. That's what the the music streaming sites saw when they're like, oh, why do we charge nine pound ninety nine for every disc when we can just charge a hundred million people nine pound ninety nine to access all everything? Sorts. Yeah. Which gives you huge scale. Yeah. That's why I think it's... Yeah. Those are the two models that succeed. And then you've got the Amazon right in the middle, which is the e-commerce side of things. Yeah. Let me ask you those quick fire questions, if I may. In fact, I'm not going to look at Okay. What would most surprise people about Harry Hugo? That's a great question. What would most surprise people? I grew up in pubs all my life like that. That was the thing that really... I've come from a very traditional upbringing, but also quite weird. So your parents were publicans? Yeah. Right, okay. And restaurant owners. And restaurant owners. From the age, when I was aged like three or four to 15. I was professionally trained as a chef by the time I was 13. Wow. And doing 200 covers a night in restaurants. That's where like, 
the biggest thing that people need to be able to be good at here is being able to cope under pressure because we have so much on at such one time. If panic stations hits, I'm probably the coolest head in the room. Right. Because there is nothing harder, nothing in this world <laughs> harder than serving 200 people in one night. It's impossible. I don't know how people do it every night. No, it's so stressful. 200 hungry people waiting for their dinner. I don't even want to think about that. Oh, paying good money for their right. dinner. There's nothing that will prepare you for life quite like working in a professional kitchen. Which brings me on to a question I wouldn't always ask a 24-year-old, but I'm definitely going to ask you. What's the best piece of business advice you've ever been given? I think there's a, a few cliche answers. There's do what you're good at, do what you love, mm-hmm. which are both very true. Delegate, don't do, mm-hmm. because it's the only way you scale. Yes. And priority is everything. Okay. Being able to see loads of different opportunities and being able to identify what the priorities are and might be none of those opportunities it might be what you're doing currently okay so getting your priorities straight is really important so keeping yourself tunnel vision and focus and that north star like just keeping everything there but i think the fact that you're the sum of the five people you spend the most time with surrounding yourself with the right people is the most important thing right okay so me spending my most time with aaron and nick and frankie and other people in this business who i either admire or, uh, mm. they're an inspiration to me or they mm. work hard or whatever it is yes is incredibly important for me to stay grounded for me to enjoy what i do and for me to develop as a person i think age 24 i have a lot to learn and a lot to develop and i'm not naive enough to think that this is anywhere near the end of the journey from where i stopped learning in that way i've only just begun so Surrounding myself with really smart people who've done a lot more than I have is incredibly important. At the same time as surrounding myself with people who are just hungry to do as much as I am. Yes. And then keep the fire in my belly to go, yes. yeah, let's do it, let's do it, let's do it. And then being the sum of those five people. And those five people change, right, all the time. Yeah. What would you do tomorrow if you knew for certain you couldn't fail? And I was in a sweet company. I'm obsessed with sweets. Oh, Okay. So I'd always, I'd always like to own a sweet company. What kind of sweets? Oh, anything. Oh, really? Anything. I'm not a very big chocolate guy. I just love okay. sweets. Okay. I'm fascinated by sweets. I like Richard Branson's Island. Yes. I like that as a concept. I'm not sure what I'd do with it, but I like, I like that as a concept. So something around owning your own land. Okay. Being able to do whatever you want. Ah, no, I know the answer to this. Uh... <laughs> I take up professional golf. I'd be oh, really? Okay. It's the best lifestyle in the world. Okay. There's no better lifestyle than being a professional golfer. Right. So around okay. the world, you play the nicest courses in the world, in the best weather, and you walk. And someone else carries your bag for you. Sounds, yeah. Best sport in the world. Even to me, that's not sounding bad. Yeah. <laughs> when you think of the world's best communicator, alive or dead, who comes to mind? I'm going to speak on behalf of the people that I think... It didn't inspire me, but I'm very impressed by how they array. Okay. I think Russell Brand is a very good speaker. Okay, yes. Um, I don't agree or believe in everything he says by any stretch of imagination, but he's probably one of the only people I've ever sat in a room with and gone, wow. I have no idea what you just said, but it was so engaging and so encapsulating. I felt like I was in a trance. Like It was unbelievable. And he's got that ability to get you to buy into what he's saying. I think Obama's very good yes. as a speaker. I tell you who is very good, and it's going to be a very left-field answer, but you've got to look at the people who are the most successful at talking, and Ant and Deck are brilliant. But the proof of that is 
there's a lot of people who do recorded TV shows and come across very, very well. Yes. And they do that. Britain's Got Talent, whatever. But there's nobody who's cracked live TV. Right. Like they have. And they've done it consistently for the last 20 years. Yes. And as a duo, which is double as hard because you've got to know what's going on with each person, whose role it is, what they're saying, how it works, the jokes, the in-jokes, moving things around. That's hard. They're not a raters at the same way an Obama is. But as an entertainer, come ability to talk to anybody at any level, Mm. from kings and queens to Mm. the person off the street who's Mm. looking to audition. The ability to come across brilliantly to everyone Mm. is a skill that there's only a very few people I've ever met who've got it. Final question. And I realise that this question is going to sound very 20th century too. (laughs) You can have anything written on a billboard for everyone to see. What would you have written on it? Now, maybe I should change that question. Maybe I should ask you to say, you can have any social influencer anywhere in the world saying anything you like. What would they say? I don't mind how you answer that question. (laughs) For the purposes of the growth, I'd say the link to the vlog. Okay, brilliant. But if it was a billboard, I'd put my Instagram handle. Okay. And nothing else. Okay. Just It'd be black and it would just be white in the middle would just be the Instagram handle. That'd be it. And, and it, your Instagram handle is? Harry Hugo. Harry very Hugo. Easy, very very easy. easy. But not because I'm great on Instagram or anything like that. It's just like the amount of people who would search that just out of curiosity would be ridiculous. I absolutely love that answer. Harry, thank you very much for being on the Internal Comms Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So that's a wrap for episode nine of the Internal Comms Podcast. To see The Daily Goat, including that episode where I interview Harry in his rather spectacular corner offices in Finsbury Square, pop over to the show notes on AB's website, abcom.co.uk. And while you're there, please do check out that Internal Comms Podcast survey. I would love to get your help in designing season two, which is going to kick off later in the year. And don't forget, all UK participants will be entered into a free prize draw to win our unique communications audit, the AB Acid Test, which I'll conduct personally with AB's consultancy team. Thank you in advance for your help. I am on a mission to make this podcast as helpful and as engaging as possible. And your feedback will help me do that. So all that remains is for me to say thank you. Thank you for listening to the Internal Comms Podcast with me, Katie McCauley. And until we meet again, remember, it's what's inside that counts.